today we're going to continue our series uh, called Good Question. And uh, the, the topic or the idea or the question that we're really going to get at this morning is kind of a hard one. It's a theological question. The question is this, is does God play favorites? Does God play favorites? And all the parents uh, here today, maybe joining online, you're thinking, boy, that is a rough question because as parents, uh, we sometimes struggle uh, to play favorites uh, with our kids. But we know we shouldn't, right? And we think, how in the world could God play favorites? And the question really comes down to, um, you know, as God looks down on the earth, on, looks at all of us and all people who have ever walked on this earth, does God ch- pick and choose some people who are God's favorites? We ask the question, does God choose certain people or do we choose God? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as your Holy Spirit moves among us, that you lead us, that you guide us, and you invite us, God, to walk ever deep with you. And God, we have so many questions about your word and what it means to be in relationship with you. And so, God, as we um, consider and ponder this morning this really good question of do you choose us, do you choose particular people, or do we choose you? God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in elementary school, uh, I used to play a game uh, with my classmates. Maybe you played this game too. It's called Duck, Duck, Goose. Everybody sits in a circle, right? And uh, the person who's it uh, walks around the circle going duck, 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 duck. Goose, and then when you hit the person with the goose, of course, you uh, run around the circle. They chase you down and try and catch you before you can sit down. Anybody else familiar with the game uh, Duck, Duck, Goose? Okay, familiar, a few of you. Um, uh, we sometimes called, uh, in Minnesota, it was sometimes called Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. Uh, but as you travel to different parts of the country, I hear different names for this game. It's, it's kind of strange. Fast forward, 15 years later. Now I'm on a college campus, uh, and I'm in a Bible study with a group of classmates. And we're having just what you might expect uh, for a Bible study with a, a group of different college students. And all of a sudden, a debate breaks out. And if you've ever been on a college campus, there's usually a debate or two that just all of a sudden breaks out. And this debate breaks out in the group. uh, And all of a sudden, people are throwing around words that I had never heard before. Big words like predestination. Big words like Arminianism. Big words like Calvinism. Big words, well, not such a big word, but election. Another big word, two words, free will. And I'm like, guys, what is going on here? Why are things so intense in the room? Help me to understand why you guys are so upset. And pretty soon, some of the uh, more knowledgeable students uh, in the room explain to me, that there's been a long-standing family feud, if you will, among Christians in the church. And it's how is it that we are in relationship with God? 
Does God come to us? Does God choose us? Or do we choose God? Do we go seeking after God? Big debate. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, I think that debate, I'm not going to resolve it for you this morning. I think that debate is going to continue to go on and on and on in the life of the church until Jesus comes back. Jesus sits us all down and says, okay, guys, here's how it works. So on the one hand, this is a really big theological, dense, difficult theological topic this morning. I also want you to know that there are no real crystal clear answers on this. But I have an opinion, and I'm going to share with you my opinion this morning. And my opinion, I want to be very clear, is my opinion. This is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ died for you, and he invites you into a relationship with him. But I'm going to share with you my opinion about this great debate of free will versus predestination, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And just so there's no um, uh, 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 wondering here this morning, Calvin was a guy. He was, he was, a, it was a reformer uh, in the church. Arminius was another guy. And they had this argument, as people oftentimes have arguments in the church. This has nothing to do with the, the country of Armenia or anything like that, okay? So it's Calvinism versus Arminianism. So, on to, so we're going to jump into uh, Romans 9 this morning. And if you really want to dig deep into this topic, you would read all of Romans 9, 10, and 11 this morning, uh, or sometime today or sometime this week. It's very dense theologically. I didn't think we wanted to cover three full chapters of the Bible this morning. So we're going to just look at a little piece of Romans 9 this morning uh, as the Apostle Paul is going to talk with us a, a little bit about what it means to be in a relationship with God. Now to kind of set this up a little bit, uh, what Paul is explaining in Romans 9 is that once upon a time God... Uh, uh, entered into a relationship with God's people. We, of course, know them as the Israelites. And now by the time Jesus has come on the scene, he died on a cross and he rose, some of the original Jewish believers believe in Jesus. Many Jewish people no longer believe in Jesus. And so the dilemma on the table that Paul is wrestling with is what in the world do we do with these Jewish people? For thousands of years, God has had a special relationship with the Jewish people. They're sometimes known as the chosen, the chosen people, God's own people. So now that the new covenant, the new relationship with Jesus, there's a new way for us and for all of humanity to connect with God. What do we do with the Jews? Especially, what do we do with the Jewish people who do not believe in Jesus and have, in fact, turned their backs on God. And so I'm going to start out reading this morning in Romans 9, uh, and we're actually going to begin uh, in verse 6, um, because Paul is lamenting. Paul is a Jew, and he wants all of his people to be saved. He wants all of his people to be rescued by God, but Paul knows they're not. And so Paul's got a very heavy heart this morning. And so Paul writes to the church in Rome, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So what is Paul talking about here? What Paul is really saying is not everybody who calls himself an Israelite is actually a true follower of God. And I talked a little bit about this last week and this idea of cultural Christianity versus convictional Christianity. If you didn't, uh, weren't here last weekend, uh, you can go on the website and check it out. But it's really the exact same idea or the same concept with the Jewish people. You've got cultural Jewish people and you've got convictional Jewish people. People who say that they're um, Jewish and followers of God and people who actually live as followers of God. And so Paul says, hey, listen, not all people who call themselves Israelites are truly Israelites. But don't blame the word. Don't blame the law. The law, God's word, did not fail. He says, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. And so Paul kind of goes back to, hey, I know you are a Jewish audience. And so let me remind you and help you to understand this whole relationship God had with the Israelites. Let's begin with Abraham. And every Jewish person who's reading this and who's hearing this is like, oh, I know Abraham. He was a great guy. Abraham was a remarkable man. Now, by this time, 2,000 years had passed. We need to wind the clock back 2,000 years from the Apostle Paul back to Abraham. And we first meet Abraham in the Old Testament in Genesis 11. It says that Abraham lived with his family in a land uh, called Ur. It's in modern-day Iraq. And Abraham's father, Terah, he was a pagan. Terah did not worship God. And that's how Terah raised his family, a bunch of pagans, a bunch of people who um, uh, just took care of themselves uh, as best they could. And they worshiped the gods of nature. They worshiped the gods of the sun. They worshiped all sorts of God. They worshiped whatever God that would help them out in their day-to-day -day lives. That's how Abraham was raised. And so when Abraham began a relationship with God, God came to a pagan man, a guy by the name of Abraham, and said, Abraham, come on out here. I want to talk to you. And Abraham is like, me? Who are you? Which God are you? Abraham had no concept of what it meant to be a follower of the one true God. So God invited Abraham to come out of his tent, to have this relationship, to have this discussion. And God looked at Abraham and said, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. I'm going to bless you. And your people are going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And I'm going to give you this special land. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the story of Abraham. And most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham. But the most important thing we, I wanna, this morning that I want to call out about this, this idea of relationship between God and Abraham is that Abraham was not looking for God. Abraham was not out one day praying to God. Abraham was not seeking God. Abraham was not looking high and low for God. Abraham was just hanging out and God showed up on the scene and God said, let's talk. I want to develop a relationship with you. The story of Abraham 
is that Abraham wasn't looking for God, but that God was looking for Abraham. And so this is why the Apostle Paul reminds him that God is the one who initiated the relationship. Now, the interesting thing, uh, those of you who know the story about Abraham, is that even though God initiated this relationship and said, hey, Abraham, let's uh, enter into a relationship, Abraham did not immediately enter into a relationship with God for about 13 to 14 years later until Abraham was circumcised, right? 13, 14 years, there's just not a lot going on in Scripture in terms of what's going on in this relationship. But until Abraham and all of his family was circumcised, that, that was a sign of the covenant relationship. And this ought to just tell all of us, there is no way anybody made up the Bible, right? Because there's not a group of guys, there's not a single guy who's walking on this earth today that thinks to themselves, hey guys, I got a great idea. Tuesday morning, let's all gather down at Union Park. Bring your knives. It's going to be awesome. You're not going to believe my idea. No human being, certainly no guy, thinks that up on their own, right? That idea could have only come from God. And this, of course, is how God made this as a sign between God and his people. That's the story of Abraham. Paul says, let me give you another example. He says, on the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So after Paul talks a little bit about Abraham, he starts talking about Isaac and all the Jewish people are like, oh, we know Isaac. We know the story of Isaac. That was such a great story from our ancestors. The story of Isaac, as so many of you know, is that Abraham and Sarah were getting up in age. They were getting really old. It says they were about 75 years old. I mean, they'd been collecting Social Security for about 10 years. And God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, you're going to have a baby. And they thought to themselves, that's crazy. That's absurd. Sarah is an old woman to have children at this point in time. 75 is not old for the record. But we can all agree it's a little bit old getting up there to have children, right? So they're like, okay, we'll see what happens. So they start waiting. Five years, now she's 80. 85, still no baby. Still no baby, now she's 90. So Sarah comes to Abraham. She's like, Abraham, maybe God needs some help. This isn't working. Why don't you go ahead and take my maidservant, uh, Hagar? Go ahead and sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. You need to help God out. And Abraham looks at Sarah and says, that's not what God said. She says, I want you to sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. And Abraham says, whatever you say, honey, I'll do it for the kingdom of Israel. Right? I'm going to take one for the team. I'll sleep with your maidservant, 
Hagar. And of course, Hagar becomes pregnant, and she has a baby, Ishmael, right? And shortly after she has this baby, about a year later, miraculous, Sarah's pregnant, 91-year-old woman walking around, and she has this baby, Isaac, and it's a miracle. And so today, as Jewish people, as Christians, who is in the line of Jesus Christ, Isaac or Ishmael? Isaac, right? Did Isaac choose God, or did God choose Isaac? God chose Isaac, right? God said, I, you, you don't understand, folks. I know you're going to try and figure this out on your own. But I told you, you will have a child, and his name will be Isaac, and he will be in the lineage of Jesus Christ, who will come to save and rescue the world. And this is the story that Paul is kind of unwinding and telling here to explain this whole idea that God chose Abraham and that God chose Isaac to do great things. But then he continues on. Not only that, in verse 10, but Rebekah's children, uh, uh, Rebekah is the wife of Isaac. Uh, Isaac is going to grow up. He's moving pretty fast here. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So Isaac grows up, he marries a woman, Rebecca, and they're having, they're having childbearing issues as well. But after some time, God says, don't give up hope. You will get, become pregnant, and you are going to have a baby. And pretty soon, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is pregnant. And there, she's got not just a little bit of a rumbling in her tummy. She's got some stuff going on in her stomach. And she's like, God, what in the world is going on? And God says, you're not just having one baby. You are having twins. You win. And not just twins, you get two boys are rumbling in your tummy there. Now, if any of you grow up with brothers, I grew up with a brother. Brothers like to fight, right? You put two boys in a room and they just go at it. They start fighting. They start arguing. They start wrestling. Boys are just very physical in that way, right? And sometimes you wonder if they're going to survive, because they just fight and argue. Now, the interesting thing about Isaac and Rebecca's boys is they fight for sure, but they don't fight, start fighting and arguing uh, when they're teenagers. They don't start fighting and wrestling when they're elementary school. Uh, they don't start fighting uh, when they're in preschool or even toddlers. They are already WrestleMania in mommy's tummy. Poor Rebecca. Things are going wild and crazy with those boys even before they are born. And this is the story of Jacob and Esau. And many of you know that uh, Esau, the name means uh, red or it means hairy. So Esau was a, a red, hairy boy as he came out. Just think of Elmo. Okay? That's Esau. 
Jacob, the name literally means heel grabber. And we're like, what in the world is a heel grabber? Well, it's, 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 it's a bit of a, a, a name for a person in the Hebrew language. Think of a con man. Jacob is that guy who just knows how to con uh, and cheat. Maybe a cheater is a better word even. That's who Jacob was, and that's what the name Jacob means. So on the day uh, that uh, uh, Rebecca is getting ready to have these babies, they're fighting back and forth. And it's really important for us to understand uh, their cultural context, that the oldest child, the one who is born first, gets all the rights. They get all the property rights. They get all the decision-making power. They get all the rights. So if you are living in ancient times in their culture, it was pretty important for you to be born first. And if you weren't, you just kind of understood your place in line in the family. And if you've ever been a part of a family who didn't have a will, you understand how messy things can get uh, really get if you don't have a will, right? This was God's way of explaining to his people, this is the succession plan so that there's not arguments among you. Because if it's just a free-for-all, if we don't have a, a clear succession plan for where does the money go, where does the property go, where does the decision powers go, uh, a fight breaks out, right? So this is what's at stake in Rebecca's belly. Who's coming out first? And so pretty soon the story goes on that Esau comes out first. There's Elmo, right? Baby Elmo comes out. And as he comes out of his mother's womb, there's Jacob grabbing, come on back in here. I mean, it's that kind of a wrestling match, even in their days that they were being born. Now Esau still got out first. And so he becomes, of course, the older child, the patriarch, the one who is going to carry on the property line, the money line, the decision-making power. He is uh, in charge of all that. But then one day, Esau is out doing what Esau does. Esau was a man's man. He was a hunter. He was a fisherman. He liked to catch animals with his hands. He liked to eat raw meat. Well, I don't know if it was raw meat, but he liked to eat meat. Jacob, he liked to stay home with mom. He was a mama's boy. Sat in the kitchen and baked with mom. Esau, he was one of those guys, very different uh, than his brother Jacob. He wore cowboy boots. Jacob, he wore uh, sandals with socks, right? And when television was on, Esau, he loved to watch wrestling. Jacob liked to watch Lifetime Cinema, and he cried through all the movies. Esau, he drove a big old pickup truck. It was even lifted. It was a diesel. Jacob drove an eco-friendly bicycle. They were just very different boys, right? One like country music. Esau loved country music. Jacob, he loved whatever was on the Disney Channel, the D Disney musicals, and he sang along. I mean, if you've got boys, if you've got kids, you ask yourself this question, how is it that I've got two of the same kids, they were raised in the same house, in the same environment, and they are different as day and night? Anybody ever wonder that or just me? That is Jacob and Esau. They were as different as different can come. 
And so on the day that Esau is out hunting and gathering and killing things, he comes home, he walks into the kitchen, he smells something, it smells really good. Jacob's been, been baking and cooking. And Esau's, I am so hungry. Jacob, what, whatever you got, can I have some of that? And Jacob's like, I don't know. I don't know. Remember, he's a trickster. He's a con man. He's a cheat. He says, I have an idea. I'll give you a bowl of soup if you exchange your birthright. Give me your birthright. Give me all of the privileges that you have as being the oldest child, the money, the property, and the decision-making. And Esau, he was not real good with making delayed gratification. What we're waiting. He's like, no, I want soup, and I want it now. And so he agreed to it. And in that moment, Esau gave away his birthright and all the privileges that came with it. And I think about Esau's decision today, and this is really uh, so much the same problem we have in our culture today. We live in a society where we just don't want to wait. We really struggle with delayed gratification, don't we? So many people today choose what is expedient and easy over the long term, over a relationship with Jesus. Because let's be honest, following God is not easy. Being a disciple of Jesus is not easy. What's easy? Sleeping in. What's easy? Not going to church. What's easy is doing my own thing. What's easy is not reading my Bible. What's hard is get up on Sunday. Did anybody else have anything else to do this morning and then come to worship, to gather together? I would imagine you have plenty of things you could be doing. Reading the newspaper, Starbucks, right? It's easy. I get it. I understand it. And that was Esau's issue. And in that moment, he's like, yeah, delayed gratification. Can't do it. I'm hungry. Think about this. Esau, you are going to be in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau through King David all the way to Jesus Christ who will come rescue the world. That will be your legacy. Nah, I want soup. That was his decision in that moment. Was Esau a good guy? No. He struggled. Was Jacob a good guy? No. He was a trickster. He was a con man. He was a cheat. See, I think the point of the story of Jacob and Esau is that God can take bad people and use even those bad people to do some really important things. God's work. God chose Jacob to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ, to be a part of the rescue of the world. And Paul is unpacking and explaining all this this morning. So, um, uh, and, and then, uh, let's see. She, she was told the older will serve the younger. So even before she had Jacob and Esau, she was told that this was what was going to happen. And of course, she didn't understand it at the time. And so if you're unclear this morning what my personal opinion is, 
of what my bias is, what I think the Apostle Paul is teaching us this morning, is that we don't choose God. God chooses us. Go down just a little bit to verse 16. Paul writes this, in case you're still unclear. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. As you're reading through the Old Testament over and over and over, what you're going to see time and time again is that people do not choose God. Right? I mean, those of you who are reading the Old Testament were just like, are they ever going to choose God? It seems they spend all their time disobeying God and doing their own thing. And then God just keeps pursuing and chasing after his people, saying, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. I know you've walked away from the relationship with me, but I want to have a relationship with you. The Old Testament story is a story of God's pursuing his people over and over and over again. And this, of course, is the Apostle Paul story. Those of you who know the background of the Apostle Paul, Paul was not a Jesus follower. In fact, Paul hated Jesus followers. And so when Paul got word that there were these Jesus followers running around uh, in Jerusalem talking about Jesus, that he was the Son of God, he got really upset. The Apostle Paul would be the equivalent of a, a terrorist. He did whatever it took to kill Christians, to lock them up and put them in jail. That's what Paul's path was. That's what Paul was all about. He was not a Jesus follower. And then one day, God came to the Apostle Paul and says, Knock it off. Leave those people alone. They're talking about my son Jesus. And Paul, I want to have a relationship with you as well. The Apostle Paul did not go searching after Jesus. Jesus sought the Apostle Paul out. And we know today that the Apostle Paul was one of the most influential people who has ever walked on the planet today. He wrote about half the books of the New Testament. I mean, this guy went from let's kill all the Christians to let's tell everybody about Jesus. That's who Paul was. And it's not because he went looking for Jesus. It's because Jesus went looking for him. So when Paul talks about these things and says these things, it's personal to him. One more verse uh, earlier on in Romans. This is how Paul describes the human condition. He says, There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And I looked this up in the Greek. You know what one means in Greek? Not even one. It's very clear. Paul tells us, None of us follow after God. We all follow after our own selves. None of us pursue God. He pursues us. This is what Paul wrote uh, in Ephesians 1. For God chose us in him, and I love this part, before the creation of the world. Think about that. God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given freely to the one he loves. Even before God created the world, he chose you. 
Doesn't that just blow your mind? He chose you even before he created the trees or anything on this earth. That's how long ago God chose you. He predestined that you would be his child. Now you might be thinking to yourselves, so what? What's the point? Great. Great, Brian. Great Bible study this morning. What does this mean? I want to close this morning by giving you two reasons why this matters. And I think it, frankly, matters a lot. The first reason why it matters that God has chosen you, that God has selected you, God has elected you, that God has predestined you before the world began is so that you can have peace. You can have assurance. You know, you might be wondering this morning, what was the first point of the sermon this morning? It's, it's in your worship outline, the first song we sang this morning, Blessed Assurance. You know, oftentimes I talk to people who do not have that assurance, who do not have that peace. And if God has chosen you and elected you before the world began, there is nothing you can do about it. He has chosen you and selected you. If you choose God, if, it, if you are self, if saved um, in, in, in a relationship with God because of what you have done through free will, that all of a sudden becomes very problematic. Because if you choose God on your very best day, you might think to yourself, I chose God, look at me. You might struggle with a little bit of pride and you might look around at other people going, they didn't choose God, what's wrong with them? On a good day, if you embrace this idea of you choosing God, you are apt to become prideful. You are likely to think that your salvation depends on a decision that you made. That's a good day. But on a bad day, if you don't have that assurance, you're asking yourself, wonder if I'm saved. I sinned a lot this week. I wonder if I lost my salvation. See, if your salvation, if your relationship with God depends on you seeking God, it's going to ebb and flow, right? Mine's mostly going to flow. It's just not going to happen. It's just going to be like, oh, God, how in the world is this working? Most of the day, I am just not feeling worthy to be in relationship with you. But if you believe and you embrace this idea of predestination, that God says to you, even before the world began, I decided that you are, go you are among my elect. That can give us peace. That can give us assurance. This past week, uh, I was meeting with uh, a family to plan a funeral. Uh, plan a funeral for somebody who hasn't died yet. And frankly, they're not very old, um, but uh, the doctors have told this person that they're going to die soon. So I went over to their house, and we planned a funeral for a couple hours. Uh, lots and lots of details uh, going through all the funeral details. And after a couple hours, uh, we're all kind of finished up. We kind of got most of the details worked out. And this person looked at me and said, you know, it's a funny thing. Not anxious. Not worried. Not stressed. Sure, I wish I lived a longer life or could live a longer life, but that's just, that's just not going to happen. 
I got peace. You don't think this makes a difference, this whole idea that God has chosen you and elected you before the world began? Talk to someone who's facing death and listen to the peace in their heart. This is the only way we can have peace, right? Because if we choose God right up until the last day that we take our breath, we are going to be in knots wondering if we have chosen the right way in all God's plans. So that's number one, that you can have peace. This is why it matters. It's one, that you can have peace for yourself. And number two, why does this matter? It matters because you don't have to carry the burden for other people. You don't have to worry about and stress about your loved ones, your family, your friends. Because if God has chosen them like God has chosen you to be among the, uh, the elect, God has done the same thing for your loved ones. And if God has not chosen them, there's nothing you can do about it anyways, right? You're going to override God? Good luck with that. And so you can have peace. God's got it. He's going to take care of your loved ones in the right time if he has chosen them. Yesterday morning, there were a group of us uh, that went uh, on a prayer walk uh, in a subdivision just over here uh, for just about an hour, and we walked from house to house uh, praying over each house. And uh, if you've never done it before, I just want to encourage you to do it. It's, it's pretty fun. It's pretty interesting um, because as we walked through the neighborhood, uh, there weren't a lot of people out at uh, 9.30 in the morning. But the people we did see out in the morning, uh, they were a little bit, let's just say, cautious of us. Who are those people? Now, we were divided into three teams, so we weren't this big group of you know, people walking around the neighborhood. But we would just walk from house to house, and we would stand up uh, in front of uh, each house after the next house, and we would just pray a Bible verse. We would just read a Bible verse over the house. And this just went on, and, and we had people watching us, and uh, most people just really stayed away from us. Uh, believe it or not, nobody really wanted to talk to us. A couple people were a little bit curious about us. And then as we were finishing up in the morning, we are looking at a house. We just prayed over the house. I can't remember which prayer it was, but it was one of the Bible verses. And all of a sudden, a woman comes out of her house to do some lawn work. And she saw us. We saw her. We walked over to her. It was very obvious that we're standing in her driveway. We said, hey, you've got a beautiful house. Love the vegetation out here. And we just entered into this very natural conversation. She turned off her power tools. She looked at us. She said, yeah, we've lived here a long time. She said, my husband died three months ago. And then it was waterworks. She just broke down, started crying, because her husband is the one who took care of the lawn and everything that was going on there. And it was just a moment for us to just listen to this woman pour out how sad she was, how grieved she was. Just talk to her about her loss of her husband of 59 years. And then someone in our group said, I lost my husband recently. I know what it's like. 
know what it feels like to lose a husband six decades. Can we pray for you? She said, oh, please do. So she prayed for her. And in that moment, I thought to myself, God has called us just to come out here, walk the neighborhood, to be present. If a conversation arises, to just share Jesus with them. We're not coming out here in any subdivisions with any fancy words, no slick program, no nine different things you need to do to follow Jesus. Just listening to people, praying with them, telling them that Jesus loves them, is with them. I'm not worried about that lady because her salvation is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on any of you. It's dependent on God and whether that woman has been chosen and elected and selected to spend eternity. And sometimes I think as Jesus followers, we get this all messed up, that we think it's our job to convince people to follow Jesus. It's not our job to convince people. It's not our job to save people. Our job is to serve people and share with people. God's job is to seek and save and so when we understand that as people who have been predestined before the creation of the world as his followers, we don't have to carry that burden of all the other people in the world. We need to engage the world, we need to share Jesus with the world, and we need to allow God to be God to invite them at just the right moment into that special relationship like he's done with you, like he did with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Apostle Paul. And this is why I think it matters that we don't choose God, but that God chooses us. And in that, we can rest and have peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who is loving and kind. And God, even though we've talked about this uh, incredibly thick and dense theological idea of predestination, Lord, we still have many questions about it. Because God, it, I mean, just to be honest, it doesn't seem fair that you would choose some and not choose others. But you're God. You are God, and we are not. You are the potter. We are the clay. You are sovereign. You are in control. You are over all. And we're children. And God, there's so much we don't know and don't understand about the world, about your creation, about your universe, and about your people. So God, as we continue to wrestle with these questions, give us great curiosity, give us humility, and give us peace that can only come through you. Lord, in your mercy, 
hear our prayer.